Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, March 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, it's a rare time when we're together, and this is actually the second week in a row, so pretty exciting. We're live, live, live here from the Venetian in Las Vegas. I know. I feel like I've won the lottery getting to hang out with you this much. I know. You're, you're a very lucky man. That's all I can say. So, listeners, uh, we are, we're recording this at the end of the day on Monday. We've consumed two out of four days of content. So we're going to call this the Shop Talk Halftime Show. And um, the show this year is really dense, and we thought it would be important to give you guys kind of a real-time update of what we're learning about the show, some of the more interesting aspects, so that we can kind of at least have two updates. We may actually put a third, depending on what kind of content comes out in the next couple of days. Um, so just a quick overview of the show this year. Uh, it looks like the attendance is about double. I think we decided Jason, is that right? So I think they're saying somewhere North of 8,400 attendees. Uh, it definitely feels like it. The show outgrew the Aria and is now at the Venetian, um, in, uh, I guess it used to be called the Sands conference center, but now they call it this fancy Palazzo or whatever it is conference center. Um, and uh, another thing that's really interesting this year is they've added a couple new tracks. There's there's a grocery talk track, um, which I know is near and dear to your heart. So there's this kind of acknowledgement that groceries undergoing a digital change um, really kind of in a bike. Not only that, but actually on the show floor. Um, and then there's a whole track around AI and machine learning, which has been one of our favorite topics. Um the the you know me coming from the vendor world the show floor is absolutely huge this year uh, last year there were like these little mini meeting room kind of things and this year they went full showroom uh, and they have done it I don't know the square footage of that but it is as big as shop dog it's as big as shop.org. dot um, org it's as it's maybe half the size of an internet retailer I would say. But for a show's first year at having an exhibit floor, it's pretty impressive. I would say that you know um, they've done a really good job with that. Uh, another thing I really like as a vendor that they've done is a lot of the food. And then to get to the general keynotes, you have to walk through the exhibit floor. Uh, and the vendors are well aware of that, and they are lined up and ready for ready for action as you walk through there. Um, uh, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, and any other kind of – you know, macro things you want to talk about that you noticed this year before we go into the details? Yeah, I mean, just so they uh, one interesting thing the way they've arranged the the exhibit floor is in these sort of subject matter pavilions. So there's like a AI pavilion that you know is largely companies focused on AI and a grocery pavilion. So if uh, if you're looking for a particular type of vendor, they've sort of uh, consolidated those all together, which. I like. I think it makes it easier to to find relevant stuff. And then, uh, if you're a retailer, you could come to this show for free if you agreed to take a certain number of meetings with vendors. So this is a program that other shows have done, but I've never seen it done on the scale they've done here. So they they 
paid for a bunch of retailers to fly here in, in their hotel rooms. They arranged a bunch of meetings with vendors. And as big as the trade show floor is, there's a whole huge back half of the trade show floor there's just all these meeting tables that are like speed dating between hmm. exhibitors and vendors. And it's it's a little bit like Tinder. Um, the vendor had to say they wanted to meet with this particular retailer, and the retailer had to say they wanted to meet with this particular vendor. It's like and, a double opt-in. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, swipe left, swipe right. Yeah, and so the uh, the BD people from my company, uh, we we did several of those meetings and felt like they were uh, all all valuable and, and favorable. So very cool. So props to them. Yeah. Does that come with the exhibit space, or is it kind of a separate? Yeah, there's thing? a bunch of bundles you could buy that were yeah. like this amount of space and this many meetings. Cool. This is very popular in Europe. I know uh, our European folks at Channel Advisor participate in these meetings, and always felt weird from a U.S. perspective. You know that you were kind of like, you know paying for the vendor to meet with you, but um, they've always worked, worked out pretty well for our European folks. So it's interesting to see them kind of bring that over. Yeah. They they did just do their European show at Shop Talk. I wonder if that's something, a best practice they brought over as part of that. We'll Potentially, it does appear, so they did a Europe Shop Talk last year and, and they've canceled that show. Mm. So I didn't get to go. I assume it wasn't quite as well adopted as the U.S. one, and now they're calling this the global show, and they're trying to get all their European attendees to come here. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. Like, they could have definitely lifted some of those best practices. And I, frankly, I came here a little skeptical about the meetings because uh, there, there were some logistic hiccups leading up to it. Like, if a vendor opted in and we opted in, but it didn't fit in one of the time slots they had available, uh, I think we bought more meetings than we got. So they yeah. had to give us some, you know, credits, yeah. credits back and, and not to sound too vain, but we're a better known brand than a lot of vendors on that floor. So if, if they struggled to give us the meetings we bought, you could imagine some smaller, lesser known vendors. Yeah. But it seems like the space was the constraint, not the demand. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then like once we got here, it sounds like it, it went real well. So, uh agree with you like th- this feels like one of the few shows in our space that's uh vibrant and growing yeah yeah and uh so let's dig into some of the content highlights uh i got in late sunday night super late and then you were here all day so why don't you kick it off and tell us some of the highlights from sunday yeah uh so i am in fact taking residency here in las vegas i'm here for 16 days in the hotel room that you and i are sitting in right now so that's a, a new experience for me um, and uh, Sunday night had some good keynotes that I was looking forward to hearing. Uh, the first one was Jeff Gannett, who's the CEO of Macy's. Um, and uh, so he was talking about some of their progress. Uh, they had their first uh, favorable quarter, and I want to say like 11 consecutive quarters. And, and uh, so, you know, he was very optimistic that that uh, their their um, turnaround program that they called the North Star um is uh, starting to work. Um, And so we talked about a couple of the the upcoming initiatives. They have a program they're calling Growth 50, which is essentially they selected these 50 Macy stores um, that they're going to put all of their best practices and CapEx investments into in 2018. And the idea is to see which of those things work uh, best and deploy them into all their, the rest of the, the Macy's fleet in 2019. Um, so it'll be interesting to figure out what those 50 stores are and keep an eye on them. Uh, I'm going to go with Herald Square. Seems uh, it would be somewhat shocking if that was not one of them. Uh, <laughs> Does that mean like 
they're giving up on the other 50 stores? Because is it Macy's shedding stores at a pretty yeah, good Yeah, they, they right? have closed a bunch of stores, but they're still, and uh, listeners will check me on this, but I want to say the fleet's going to be like 2,000 stores. So it's still a lot of stores. And so what you don't do is just do a bunch of expensive things and all 2,000 and hope they work. So, so picking 50 stores as pilots kind of makes sense. It's kind of a complex offline A-B test. Yeah, yeah. We call it a match panel test, actually, but that's a uh, it pr- sort of the original A-B test. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, they announced that they are deploying mobile scan and go checkout to all their stores by the end of 2018. So what that means is uh, you install the Macy's mobile app, you you scan the items you want to buy, you pay for it on the mobile app, and you walk out without ever having to get in a checkout line. If there's loss prevention tags on the apparel, which there is on a lot of the apparel, you have to walk by a security desk, show them a, a digital barcode on your on your phone, and they'll remove your tags. Um, but that potentially eliminates what they Macy's says is the number one complaint about Macy's, which is hard to find a cashier or too long a wait in line uh, to pay. And yep. so, so they were they were pretty bullish on that. Um, is there a vendor doing that, or that's just like part of their point of sale stuff? They did not disclose that they were partnering with a vendor to do it. It seems like something they built organically. You are you are absolutely right. There are third party vendors that you can hire to facilitate that for you. But uh, I, I somewhat suspect that Macy's is not using a third party to implement it. Um, another one that was interesting to me, and I haven't seen the media really pick up on this yet, but but he talked about their desire to clean up their promotional calendar. And mm, sounds familiar. That's retail code for we want to get away from all of the crazy promotions we're doing. And he specifically said we want to uh, eliminate the need for our shoppers to do quote unquote Macy's math um, to figure out how to get the best deal. This is longtime listeners will know this is kind of what killed JC Penny, right? Well, even more <laughs> more funny, uh, it, it absolutely uh, killed Ron Johnson's tenure at JC Penny. Yeah. They were highly promotional. He tried to dramatically clean up their promotional calendar, and it it just didn't work. Um, and at the time, a lot of us criticized Ron Johnson because we were pointing out that retailers like Macy's had tried this in the past and it didn't work for them. <laughs> so it's even more ironic that, that Macy's that has, frankly, past experience trying to move away from, from promotional pricing models um, is going back to it. And we've, we've talked on listener question shows about the fact that everyday low prices seems like the future of pricing. And because of transparency, these promotions aren't as, as uh, appealing as they once were but that it's really hard to shift once you have a customer base that's used to promotional pricing. Now, um, the, so Terry Lundgren, um, so he's transitioned. Just uh, retired, yeah. Yep. His big thing was to add that discount store inside of Macy's, but I didn't hear you say anything about that. Or is that still – so that, that kind of makes sense. If you're going to have this discount like dollar store jammed inside of Macy's yep. or TJ Maxx is probably a more appropriate analogy, then I, I think it does make sense to then you could have at least kind of a – uh, a way of, of balancing out the promotional things. Is that still a strategy, but or, or is that off the table? I, I think that still is a strategy. Macy still does have these off-price stores that I, I think the most perfect analogy is that are, you know, sort of Nordstrom Rack uh, yeah. uh, equivalent. Um, but they, they weren't mentioned at all in the keynote. Mm. Uh, so either, like, they didn't double down on it or say they're moving away yeah. from it. Um, you, you could interpret moving away from the promotional calendar that, you know, they're they're – 
trying to jack their margins up in the mainline Macy stores, but you're exactly right. Yeah. Like they, they, that could be to differentiate it from the discount concept more. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, the next keynote was Target. Um, so this is Brian Cornell, who's the CEO of Target. They're another retailer that you could kind of say is in the midst of a turnaround strategy. Um, and he spent a, a he did a couple interesting things. Like he his was a little more less tactical than the Macy's keynote. He talked a lot about um, the their migration to digital and how they've embraced digital. And he he talked about this. He didn't call it the innovator's dilemma, um, but that's essentially what it is. He's like, you know, there's this natural inclination when you have all these stores and the stores are profitable um, and these new shopping behaviors come in to say, like, why would I ever invest things that discourage customers from going to the store? That that's just your natural instinct. Um, and he, he, you know, kind of claimed that, like, Target had overcome that instinct um, and was now sort of embracing digital and that they were largely converting the stores into fulfillment hubs and that they they ship something like 70% of all their e-commerce orders from the store. He brought on stage with him the CEO of Shipped, which is a logistics company they just bought. Mm -hmm. He he said that they bought them specifically because they wanted to be the first national retailer to offer same-day delivery in all markets. Yep. Um, And then just last week they announced they're rolling that out in more stores, if I recall. Yeah, yep. yeah. So I think that their intention is to eventually get it in all stores that are also experimenting with curbside pickup, which we've talked a lot about here. Um, so uh, a lot of uh, interesting things there. And then he pivoted to another topic that I think is going to be very common uh, this year, which is their their doubling down and reinvestment in owned brands. Mm. Um, and this used to be the thing we call private label. Um the, the portfolio now, when they talk about own brand, they're talking about brands they created, often that in some cases they'll even sell at other other uh, channels of distribution, um, so potentially sell on Amazon. Yep. Um, uh, and Target has some very successful own brands. They're also talking about brand exclusives. So we'll sell stuff from national brands, but, but SKUs that are only available in our store, and we'll sell limited edition stuff. Um, so stuff, you know, that there's a constrained supply targets somewhat famous for that with promotions they've done for people like with like, uh, Willie Pulitzer and others. Um, so, so that is one of their big plays. That's most retailers big play against Amazon is to sell stuff that Amazon can't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of, uh, his big talking points. So I know they um, Room Essentials is their like furniture brand, and then what is it, Jack and the kids one, Cat and Jack, Cat and Jack. Okay, yeah. The is um are there? Do you know of any examples of where they've sold those other places? Uh, so uh, I haven't as much seen Target sell their own brands in other yeah. places. Costco yet. has. Yeah. yeah, Costco very famously does. There, there's more Kirkland on on uh, sold on Amazon than on Costco.com. I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, but there are other. Uh, I'm trying to remember if uh, if Target invested in or owns Method, but Method is sold mm. elsewhere. So there's. Yeah, I think they co-developed it with that uh, designer. Yeah, uh, Michael Graves. Sorry, I have to. I have one of our interns go research that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me know how that works out for you. Uh, so that was an interesting keynote. And then uh, sort of a perfect transition, the third keynote on Sunday night was 
uh, two VPs from Amazon that are responsible for the Amazon Go store. Uh, so this is a uh, Gianna Perini, who's uh, responsible for who's sort of the, the business leader for Amazon Go, and then uh, Dilip Kumar, who's responsible for all the technology used in the Amazon Go store, and is also responsible for the Amazon bookstores. Um, so the very first thing they did, which was hyster- I thought hysterical, uh, after both. Um, Target and Macy's had mentioned kind of scan and go. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazon, of course, came on and threw shade at what a pain in the neck scan and go is <sighs> and how we really built a store just because customers don't want to have to scan each item as they're, as they're shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a learning from the bookstores? Because that's how the bookstore model works. Yeah, well, I don't know specifically. Uh, I mean, I would, kind of throwing shade at the bookstore. Yeah, and I would argue the bookstore is in many ways the worst version because yeah. you like literally can't find out the price without. Yeah, you have to scan to even find a price. So there's more scanning than yeah. you would even get at a Macy's. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it was not a um, very hostile interview. So let me just say that question was not asked <laughs> either, uh, okay. either of them, but it, it was a little bit funny. Um, this was the keynote I was most looking forward to. Uh, Amazon Prime Now was at the show last year, and I, I felt like they shared a lot of new information about the Prime Now program that at least I had wasn't previously aware of it was less true this time so i didn't there was not a lot of like major new disclosures um you know everyone was trying to figure out is it are they going to roll go out to more stores are they going to put it in whole foods there were no announcements like that at this uh at this keynote um they did talk about what some of the best sellers in the store was and apparently there's this chicken sandwich that's been their perpetual number one seller but that it is a lot of food stuff. So Amazon makes their own meal kits in that store and that those are top sellers. And that fresh fruit is a top seller. Uh, there's an odd thing about Amazon and fresh fruit uh, that this store is in the corporate headquarters. And this corporate headquarters, uh, Amazon has way less employee amenities than almost any other big company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the rare amenity that, that Amazon like touts a lot is that they give free bananas to all the employees. Um, and apparently this has killed the market for bananas in downtown Seattle. That, like, <laughs> the smoothie shops used to charge to put bananas in the smoothie. Now they let you bring your own smoothie, your own bananas in to put in the smoothie because yeah. everyone in downtown Seattle gets free bananas does, from Amazon. Does the banana thing, so when Prime uh, took on Arrested Development, there was a big, the one of the running jokes, I'm not a huge Arrested Development person, but there's a banana stand thing in there. And I think they started it as kind of like to celebrate that. And it's yeah. kind of kept going. Is that is that true or did I make that up in my head? Uh, I don't know. Okay. We'll have uh, to ask some of our ex-Amazonians. Yeah, to, yeah. To but there's the, there just is this odd fruit thing with Amazon. So then I found it funny that like this, this store, which is largely the employee cafeteria, is really what the Amazon Go store is. Yeah. Um, the, the number number one seller is fruit. So it made me wonder if they're going to stop giving away the bananas now that they can – they can monetize the bananas in the ghost. Probably don't sell a lot of bananas in the ghost store. No, no. I imagine that it's fresh fruit other than bananas. Um, but there were a couple other interesting things. Uh, so Dilip was talking about like the the ghost store we've talked about a lot. It's based on uh, very advanced machine learning around computer vision. So this is mostly done with cameras. And the interviewer asked why they chose cameras. There are all these examples in Europe and elsewhere of people trying to do similar concept with RFID tags. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they felt like aspirationally, 
uh, a store model where they have to constantly apply tags and sensors to all the shelves and products wasn't very interesting to them. They felt like the the much more scalable long-term solution was to invent this computer vision model. Um, I know you're very passionate about RFID tags. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think he's right. I think RFID tags or item level RFID tags for products in a store uh, is a pain in the neck. Yeah. Uh, and unless we get to this thing called source tagging where all the manufacturers put the RFID tag on in the factory, it's it's never going to take off. Do Can you do RFIDs for like um, fruit and stuff? Uh, potentially, yeah. yeah. So at the moment like – Cost aside, I think there's a cost problem. But like even yeah, then, like yeah, you know, it, don't want an RFID mild, on my you know, apple. So there's a sticker on every one of your apples now and that sticker could essentially be an RFID yeah, tag. Okay. Um the and that it, it, it that sounds like a far fetched example. Like there's an argument in the future of food that you're going to want to know a lot more about that apple before you buy it. Like how many days ago it was picked and all these other things. And so, like you you could imagine them wanting to tag each individual apple for a variety of reasons. But all that aside, uh, it was just interesting to hear them talk about how they debated tags versus cameras and went mm-hmm. with the cameras. Um, Another nice thing with. Um with cameras is once you get on digital, then Moore's law should kick in where RFID tags are always going to be this manual tagging yeah. process that is not going to change the scale and will always be subject to, unless you have a robot that can put the tags on it, yeah. which it's kind know. of software versus hardware yeah. really like, yeah. and, and like generally software is a heck of a lot more profitable because as, as you scale it, the, the nominal cost is very low. Yeah. And then you have the, then there's this other acceleration, and I don't know. So Moore's law, I think we all understand that you know processing power gets doubles every two years. But then, uh, you know, I wonder if there's some corollary to that with machine learning, like the system gets smarter every X, you know, things it sees. Probably, you know, there, there's some probably interesting thing there that also is yeah. Very helpful. I mean, there's a couple examples of that, like the the uh, accuracy of computer vision, which is the specific subset of artificial intelligence this store is using, has been improving faster than Moore's law. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Now you'd think it would. Yeah. And then, like, it, then it'll hit some kind of like, you know, presumably it'll hit some plateau, plateau because yeah. it's some, unlike uh, chips, which could always get faster at some point, your computer vision is perfect. Yeah. And how do they tell like um, a chicken sandwich and a tuna sandwich? Like, do they have to put different containers on it to help or? Yeah. So that is a great question that wasn't asked. Um, but there was a similar one that was kind of interesting. Uh, so because there are no sensors on, on the items, the camera has to recognize every skew. And so the reporter said, like, do you struggle to tell sugar-free Red Bull from regular Red Bull? And he's like, yes, we do. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. those are the, the, the really difficult edge cases. And I, I had thought about that before, that, like, different flavors or, or subtle differences, your chicken versus tuna sandwich being a, an exacerbated version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, would be really hard. And then he pointed out a part of the problem I hadn't considered before. It's like, not only do we need to tell sugar-free Red Bull from regular Red Bull, the moment when we need to tell them is the exact moment when you've picked it up and probably blocked the word sugar-free with your thumb. Yeah. And so those sort of obfuscated views that they get is uh, obstructed views they get of the product is also a pretty tricky problem. Yeah. Knowing Amazon and kind of the playbook they've done with frustration-free packaging, you can almost see them going back to the manufacturer and kind of having, you know, 
you know, AI or vision friendly packaging where, you know, make this one purple and this one yellow or something other than, you know, a small kind of text word for sugar. Yeah. And you, you've hit on one of the reasons like this works for ghost store, but potentially not other things. First of all, everyone keeps calling it the ghost store. A more accurate term might be go restaurant Mm -hmm. because there actually is a big kitchen and the majority of what they sell is food that's prepared in that store. And so to your point, they can solve their own problem by using square boxes for the chicken and uh, round boxes for the tuna or whatever whatever they want to do. Um, a minority of the SKUs in the store are national brands. Yep. Um, so for their own brands, they can make the packaging distinctive enough that it, it does solve that problem, whereas uh, much harder to do a whole food store or something yep. like that. I wonder if they could even do um, – and I've seen some examples of this in retail – I wonder if they could overlay some kind of a machine readable but not human readable thing on the packaging too, right? So the chicken and the tuna come in the same package, but the machine can see maybe a UV level or something. Uh, you know that the, you know, there's something that very clearly, you know, yeah. two blinking circles versus a, a, a red box, or you know, there, there's some things. In, yeah, they you know, could build cameras that see in the infrared spectrum spectrums. or yeah. something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not discussed, but interesting things to think about. Did they talk about when they first launched? Um, we we did a deep dive on that. The uh, they had a room, you know, right there in the store where people were kind of like both checking the AI and then also, you know, I'm sure the AI kicks out and says, you know, does not compute and there's some error right there and a human has to go kind of like figure it out. Um, did they talk about that at all? Like the error rate and only, if it's no, getting better? No, very indirectly. So they did not talk about how well the machine learning, uh, the machine vision is working or the error rates. Uh, they they were asked how many employees work in the store, and they dodged that question too. Um, <laughs> but she talked about like sort of three big classes of employees that they're like you've seen how you've been in the store, you've seen how many people are in the kitchen, you've seen how many people are on the floor helping, and you've seen how many orange shirts there are. Mm. And orange shirt, if uh, if you've been to the store, is code for these employees that are working in the back room looking at the video displays and training the AI. Yeah. And so the implication was there's still an army of orange shirts watching a lot of people shop and, and refining the algorithms. Yeah. It's interesting they don't use Mechanical Turk for that because I imagine it has to be real time. So they have to like, you know. Yeah. To yeah. And I think all that video is local to the store. I bet you that video yeah. isn't like, at least in real time going. I mean, it's a lot of cameras. So yeah, even, even Amazon wouldn't like love the AWS bills for doing that. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was interesting. I would have liked to hear some, like, you should have been the interviewer on that one, but you know, Amazon negotiates these things very yeah, carefully. I, so I imagine, yeah, I think there's was, a reason some of the things didn't go, go to where we would have liked to see them go. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the, the only other thing that kind of came up a little bit that was interesting to me is, uh, uh, they did talk about the fact that, um, you have to have an app to be in the store because you, you have to have the Go app to register. You sort of walk through like a subway turnstile to get in. Um, and one of the the peripheral benefits of that is that they allow shopper feedback to be given real time in the app. Um, and so unlike almost any other store, when a shopper is in the middle of the shopping experience and something doesn't go how the shopper wants, they can in real time give feedback and that feel, feedback is tagged with the context that shoppers in. Hmm. So, so she said that that's been a surprisingly valuable 
data stream for them to improve their operations mm-hmm. in the store, which I like. You think totally. they're using beacons so they know where you are too, or the the machine, the visual I think stuff visually, knows where you are better than visually. Like, and again, it's a tiny a store, yeah. so like you're in front of one of three gondolas, so yeah. like, so it's like probably tagged with with that kind of context information. Yeah. Now, Jason Del Rey, uh, you know, uh, over at Recode, the e-commerce reporter, he has kind of heard rumors or, or dug up some some data that indicates there's a plan to open four or five more of these stores. Um, and then did they talk about Whole Foods at all? Uh, only in the uh, context that they said they have no intention of deploying this to Whole Foods right now. Yeah. And so two ways to interpret that. Usually when an Amazon employee emphatically says they have no intention of doing something, you should sort of assume they're going to do it, right? Like because they, <laughs> they have no intention of offering a shipping service. They have yeah. – <laughs> um, there's lots of history of them denying something right up to the moment they do it. Um, in this case, I think there's a lot of logistical reasons that Amazon Go doesn't fit legacy Whole Foods uh, fleet of stores particularly well. So I sort of do believe them. Yeah, let's talk about those. I think it's interesting. So why why doesn't it work in a Whole Foods? Is it just the cost or yeah. what? So in this very small 2,000-square-foot store, um, there's more than 50 cameras to make sure that they have complete coverage on the store. And what they need to do is from the time you walk through that subway turnstile, they have to maintain line of sight on you at all times, and they have to maintain line of sight on every skew in that store. Mm-hmm. Um, so there can't be any blind spots where no camera can see you. Um, and there can't be any spots where every camera in the store loses track of you momentarily, because then even when they saw you again, they don't know that you're the same person that had the app when you walked in the store. Right. Yep. So this store was designed from the ground up to have perfect lines of sight. It's a very boring square store with no displays in the middle of the store. In a a traditional store, you have this thing called aisles, Mm -hmm. and those gondolas in the aisle obstruct your ability to see uh, certain angles. You have lots of displays that, uh, you know, for fruit and things that, like, create blind spots in the store. Um, You have vendor-provided displays that aren't even provided by Whole Foods that block lines of sight in the store. So... uh, the amount of cameras you would need to eliminate every blind spot in a 25,000-square-foot Whole Foods is almost mind-boggling. And then you still have another problem. You can't let a customer go into an elevator where they wouldn't be on a camera. You can't let a customer go to a bathroom. Um, there's a whole host of things that, you know, just taking all the, the Whole Foods stores that already exist and retrofitting them with this technology doesn't feel very likely to me. Could they build new Whole Foods stores that are intended to be more compatible with this? Yes. Could they use this technology in limited ways in that Whole Foods? Could they use this technology to make you not have to get your wallet out when you pay and just charge your Amazon account? Um, Or the most popular part of a Whole Foods is the prepared section. You know, a lot of people just go and have lunch at Whole Foods. Yeah, could you have a shallow like an express uh, portion? You could have an Amazon uh, Go store inside of the the whole yeah. food store for sure i bet that's kind of what he's hinting at because he said he also said something like stay tuned yeah yeah we'd have no plans to put in whole foods but stay tuned which a lot of people took to mean either they're going to open more stores or there was some plan to do something with the whole foods that was kind of like different than the question that was yeah. asked. and to me the most valuable thing that you can do with this computer vision that I, they could very easily do it at whole foods is just putting the camera forget tracking the customer just putting the camera to see the shelf and to accurately track the inventory on the shelf 
is hugely valuable for the store. Stores are have very uh, poor inventory, and they spend a lot of money to maintain that poor inventory. Mm. And so uh, leveraging the computer vision system to have more accurate inventory, yeah. that that alone could be super valuable to Whole Foods. And that's the really bad part of the del- delivery. So I'm a big Instacart. I've tried them. I use them all very regularly. Yeah. Um, the best one's Prime now because it knows the inventory because it's a maintained DC. So you know, having cameras that then watch the inventory and see the last apple's been picked by an in-store customer so that me, the delivery customer, doesn't order that apple and then get a stock out, you know, that there's some really big wins on all sides of the equation there. I, th- I think you're right. That's an absolutely. Thing. And I think that's going to come up again in uh, some of the other keynotes we're going to talk about as well. Cool. So that, uh, any other highlights from Sunday you want to hit? Uh, any think- crazy off the hook parties where you were dancing on the table? None that I'm contractually allowed to talk about or that you recall. Yeah. Cool. Then that takes us to Monday. Uh, and then I got in late, late, late uh, Sunday night. So I was able to hit some of the stuff Monday. Uh, and the way it worked this morning is you had two tracks. And the way they're running these tracks is there's five parallel tracks. Um, as a, you know, when you, when you build these events, uh, it always frustrates people that, that event planners do this, but they do it for a reason. It's designed so that you'll bring five people, you and four friends from your company. So, um, and then they, they're, they're very thematic this year. I don't remember being as thematic last year. Um, so there, there was a grocery track, for example. Um, I was, um, you know, uh, I attended the first track uh, and it was really interesting. Uh, It was about brands. It was in the grocery track, but it could have been anywhere. And uh, there was a VC there um, that invest in kind of nascent brands, uh, all all consumer brands. Um, 7-Eleven was there, and and uh, and then a, uh, another investor. His role wasn't entirely clear to me, but he was really all about subscription kind of products. The theme there is one we've hit on the show a lot, where you know to create a brand used to be like a P and G level event where you would have to go spend millions of dollars to kind of say, here's this idea for a Swifter, and it's going to be this. So we're going to we're going to launch on TV with a fifty million dollar campaign and do the Super Bowl ad. Um, now uh, the world is swimming in brands, and in fact, you know one of the interesting things of this panel was there's so many brands out there that. Uh, everyone's really struggling to kind of like figure it out. Um, one of the more interesting things I thought you would like is, um, you know, the interviewer uh, asked 7-Eleven, Do, does all this digitally native vertical brand stuff bother you? And they actually said, no, it's great because those companies, you know, once they get to a certain scale, we know they the consumer will like it so we don't have to test it in our store. Uh, and then we can help them because most times if they're doing well digitally, and again, this is CPG, they're selling cases and large volumes – they can help them a lot with eaches and how to how do you single serve package these things? Um, and they talked about some. They gave a case today. They wouldn't say the name of the brand. I kind of got the vibe it was Bay or Buyer, however you said that one. That they um, they had a lot of insights once they packaged it at Seven Eleven. Uh, it did really well because the the consumer they picked up a whole nother set of consumer because there's folks that wanted to try it and they also wanted it served cold for their commute back home or, or whatnot. So some really interesting kind of things there of they actually viewed the digitally native thing very positively because it, it actually kind of, you know, already jumped the hurdle. They didn't have to build the brand in their store. It was pre-built and it made it easy for them to cherry pick it down into the store. Um, then, uh, track two, uh, came along and that was your track. Unfortunately, I had a meeting and had to miss it, but tell us about what you talked about. So you made an excuse not to, not to support me. Well, I figured we would talk about it on the podcast and I didn't want to spoil it. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So I did one of the, the panels in the grocery track and this was called sort of, uh, 
the the future of grocery or grocery reinventing itself. Um, and so I had three panelists. Uh, the first was um, Kind Bars. And so uh, that was uh, Jared, who's the VP of e-commerce there. And, and this is a very uh, interesting traditional case for me. That's a traditional... Um, CPG brand that that makes products and very successfully sells them through wholesale. So Kind Bars are you know very successful. They're in every Starbucks store and uh, Whole Foods and Amazon. And uh, they hired Jared, an experienced e-commerce guy, to launch their direct to consumer offering. Um, and uh, we we talked to a lot of brands that are interested in doing that. And the big question is always, why would a consumer want to buy from you? Because generally. Uh, you have the worst logistics and you're the worst price for your product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting to hear Kine's view about that. Um, the, the A big component is um, assortment. So they're offering uh, exclusive uh, flavors and uh, SKUs that the wholesale channel like doesn't want to carry or is out of or limited editions. Uh, they're heavily relying on a subscription program that a lot of the wholesale uh, channel doesn't offer. Um, and they feel like they have a unique brand promise and that there's a subset of the kind consumers that buy into the uh, be kinder to to each other um, uh, sort of brand ethos and want to buy from the brand, even though they're not going to have as good a logistics or price as Amazon. Yeah, yeah I think um, kind is one of these classic examples of a new newer brand that's really kind of leveraging that assortment packaging everywhere you go. It's different from a consumer. Sometimes it's like frustrating because you'll want to go to Costco and you know, my wife likes a certain one and then you either can't find it at one of the wholesale clubs or it's bundled with like some really crappy flavor you're not going to eat. So, you know, it's very clever on the brand side, but, but I do think sometimes maybe a little too clever on yeah. some of that stuff that makes it really hard from a consumer to get what you want. Yeah. And I feel like there's a bunch of brands that think they have that position with a consumer and they really don't. Yeah. Um, kind, I think probably does. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, they do. Uh, so then the next, so that was interesting to me because I think did, that, did they say how much is direct? Like, do they give you any indication? Is that like five, 10, 15% of their business? Uh, they didn't, but I, I suspect it's less than that right now. It's, 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 it sounds like meaningful revenue, but it's still pretty nascent compared to their wholesale revenue. Yep. Interesting. Um, so I would imagine it's, it's south of 1% of their, oh, wow. of their, of their total sales at the moment. Um, the next, uh, company was Sheft, which, uh, that's spelled, uh, C-H-E-F apostrophe D. Um, and they are a meal kit company. And, uh, so meal kits are sort of an interesting part of the grocery ecosystem at the moment. There are a lot of people that think it's a fad and that it's not really going to be a thing. There are a lot of people think it's the future of shopping. Whenever you say meal kits to anyone, they immediately think of Blue Apron and Blue Apron famously, uh, has like apparently no business plan to ever be profitable. Yeah. But earlier, Go said it's one of their top sellers, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's you know, consumers like these things. Exactly. And Chef is actually a little interesting. They they do offer their own meal kits, but what they mostly are is a platform for meal kits. So they're actually the private label provider for a lot of grocery stores that are now offering their own meal kits. And they have a lot of big brand partnerships to offer branded meal kits. So like Campbell's is a major investor in Chef, for example. Um, and so there, you know, there are Campbell's meal kits. Uh, so, so he, it was interesting. He had a lot of, um, understanding and f- familiarity with that market. We, uh, he talked a lot about the pros and cons of home delivery of meal kits versus 
grocery store, pick up of meal kits. Um, and the two takeaways I, I had from his his uh, thoughts that, that were kind of new to me, um, he's very anti-subscription in meal kits. And he thinks that, you know, he's like, a fundamental flaw with most of these meal kits, and most notably Blue Apron, is you can't love a meal and then reorder it, yeah. which is exactly opposite of how most of us eat. Like, mm-hmm. most of us find some particular things we like, and we repeat those over and over again. Yeah. Um, and then he also believes that uh, we all need a lot more personalization than the meal kits currently allow. And so a big part of their platform is an infrastructure that allows highly personalized meal kits. And he eventually envisions uh, that these things can be highly personalized, even at, like in the store on demand. Hmm. So you can get the the spaghetti with a lot of garlic or a little garlic and a lot of onions or all those, all those sorts of things. And is there their delivery? Let me make sure I understand this. They, they're not really direct. They're going through grocery stores. Are there a mix? So they, they do have a, a chef branded meal kit that they deliver direct to home, but mostly what they but do on demand, not subscription. Sounds yeah, like. yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, mostly what they do is facilitate a regional grocery store offering their own meal kit or someone else selling a meal kit through grocery stores. Okay. So it sounds like more of their stuff is in-store pickup meal kits than yeah. home delivery. And by regional, it kind of makes it seem like they haven't cracked into the top five or six big guys. It's not like a Kroger or Harris. So I think something. there's, uh, I think it is po- like he was not uh, completely transparent about who his partners were. So it's possible that he is white labeling for a big one. And that part of their agreement is that they, okay. that they don't disclose that comma, a number of the big ones at this point now own, their own meal kit, yeah. right? So, so Safeway bought. I can't remember who uh, bought Albertsons bought. Albertsons uh, placed, Plate, plated, plated, plated. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which was one of the biggest wins in the history of Shark Tank, by the way. Yeah. Um, fun story there. But so some of these guys all own their own. Uh, Walmart owns their own. Carrefour just bought one. Carrefour is the lar- second largest retailer in the world. They just bought one this week. So the the market for the really big guys is probably smaller. It wouldn't surprise me if they secretly have one, but he certainly didn't yeah. didn't disclose. Kind of feels like musical chairs, and some you, you don't want to be the guy without a chair in the in the meal world. Yeah, because once all the grocery stores have their own meal, then his distribution mechanism is like maybe some A and P's or something. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was interesting. And then the third panelist um, is this company I was also not familiar with called Daily Harvest, um, and Daily Harvest like decided that. Meal kits sounded too easy, so they decided to do something even harder. Um, we're going to do direct-to-consumer home delivery of frozen foods. Mm, okay. Um, and so uh, there, there's a strong... Uh, frozen meals or like blueberries so I can make a smoothie? Uh, yeah, so uh, smoothie kits, I think, is the thing they're best known for. Ah, okay. Um, so all the frozen fruits you would need to make a smoothie. But, um, but also like... Not not so much like complete frozen meals, but like frozen fruit and produce that you might Got it. Um, use in a meal. Uh, they seem very focused on uh, a lot of the altruistic, uh, we need to solve a lot of the problems in the food chain or we're all going to die of starvation kind of thing. Hmm. So they talked about what huge food waste there is in the world and how fr- uh, frozen is a great solution to a lot of food waste. Um, we throw away a lot of fruit just because it doesn't look perfect and nobody wants to put it in their fruit bin in the grocery store. So mm-hmm. what's what the industry calls ugly fruit. Um, and apparently when you freeze it, it no longer matters that that fruit didn't look 
Beautiful. So like the, the bruised apple tastes exactly like the regular apple. Um, a lot of famous restaurants now try to primarily use ugly fruit because um, they're they're trying to turn around this trend of throwing away all this uh, fruit that has cosmetic damage. Yeah, and so it was interesting that they're uh, they're trying to leverage ugly fruit as a big part of the mix. There was also this trend. Ugly frozen fruit. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, brand promise. Yeah. Uh, and another <laughs> one uh, was this uh, concept that I'd never heard of called transitional organic. Hmm. So say you're a traditional farm and you transition to becoming an organic farm. You have to adopt a bunch of organic processes, but then you can't sell your food as organic until you've been following the, those processes for a number of years. Right. So um, so there's a bunch of farmers that are in limbo where they're paying all the expenses of producing things in an organic way. But because they're only two years into their three year program, they, they're not allowed to call their product uh, organic. Hmm. And so so she's buying a lot of this transitional organic um, products. So that that was somewhat interesting. And then because it's frozen and they've invested a lot in the technology to pack the frozen uh, stuff in dry ice and ship it through common carriers like FedEx and UPS, they're they're able to deliver nutritious food to a lot of places in the country uh, that don't have convenient access to grocery stores. So we have a lot of these areas we call food deserts. Um, that they're able to cater to. So uh, so that was somewhat interesting, but they, they had to... Ugly frozen food to food deserts. Exactly. That's the pitch. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> and yet they were able to raise money on it. So it no, uh, so just shows you there's a, there's a investor for everything. Um, but it was interesting thinking about all these complicated logistics of the cold chain. Yeah. Um, and uh, It does sound complicated. Yeah, yeah. So hats off, off to her. Um, and if you think about it, if... Each of these things are popular. They disrupt a portion of the traditional grocery business, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, she pointed out the 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 frozen aisle is the least appealing part of a grocery store, and it discourages interaction with the product and, and all of these sorts of problems. Um, and, by the way, you buy this frozen stuff, and then you throw it in the trunk of your car, and it's not frozen by the time you get it home. Um, so... So if she's successful in direct-to-consumer with Frozen, that potentially takes two rows out of a grocery store. Uh, The meal kits potentially take a lot of the individual ingredient shopping that happens today. So so some some, uh, interesting things thinking about how grocery is reinventing itself. Absolutely. Cool. So after that, um, after Jason's second track there, uh, then we went into the keynotes. So kicking off the show, uh, kind of the the opening keynote, if you will, which is kind of strange. I think they realized that a lot of people come in Monday versus Sunday. Um, Zio Wigder, uh, who puts together all the content for Shop Talk, kicked it off. Um, I thought it was a pretty good good kind of, you know, it was pretty short. It was like five minutes, but the summary was, you know, we're in the new normal, which is kind of, you know, in, in 15 and 16 and, and part of 17, we had all this disruption going on. And when you're in the middle of it, you figure it's going to, you know, you'll go back to the old normal, but the, you know, that's never happens. And then she called it the new normal. And the new normal is essentially where, um, you know, you're not really reacting to disruptive innovation. It's just, you've adopted it and said, this is going to be happening going forward. 
So um, she really kind of had two pieces to it, four predictions um, uh, of where we're going to go in retail. And you can tell this has shaped the content, obviously. Uh, so number one, back-end technology will create new efficiencies and expectations. Number two, shoppers will come to expect experiences that are cutting edge today. Um, I kind of took that to mean, you know, once Amazon sets the bar at two-day, one-day, just walk out, then the customers tend to expect that. Um, I like to call this zero friction. It's pretty interesting human thing. Um, number three, startups and traditional businesses are more aligned. We're, I think we're seeing that. You know, We just talked about several. There's a very big trend in, in our industry, be it grocery or retail, where you have kind of the you know the analog dinosaur acquiring the, the digital DNA and smashing it together to create a new kind of, you know, I guess using her language, a new normal kind of combination. Um, and then uh, a wide range of new consumer products will hit the mainstream. And this is kind of what was in the first panel where you know, the cost to build a new consumer product has effectively gone down to zero. Uh, and now you're just going to see this you know, huge swath of new products, you know, micro products, micro kind of uh, tribes that they appeal to. Uh, and then she said those predictions yield seven trends. Uh, number one, the rise of niche brands. Uh, number two, the growth of experiential retail. Uh, we had um, we have a show in the can where we'll have some really interesting kind of examples of that. Uh, and then uh, the next keynote talked a lot about that. Uh, the store show, associate will not go away, but change what they do there. Uh, so like becoming an orange shirt or doing prep instead of checkout in, in the go example. Cashierless checkout is a big thing. Automation of the warehouse. More transparent supply chains. And this goes to there's a lot of concern around food safety and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people talk about blockchain uh, there. I think there's a couple talks around that coming up. Uh, and then the explosion of AI machine learning. So after after Zia, we went right into Ulta. So the CEO of Ulta was there. Uh, I don't know about you, but some of these 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 uh, keynotes they seem really interesting. But then like there's kind of a you know a they only give people 20 minutes, so you can't get into much detail. And then B the format seems to be show a video about the company, talk about some high level stuff most people already know, and then talk a little bit about. Uh, diversity and maybe the company's culture. So that seems to be I, kind I think of that's a formula. the exact template. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Ulta, uh, you know, lived up to that expectation. A um, couple points uh, that they hit on, uh, and we've talked about it on the show this kind of, you know, beauty is an area that's doing really well. Um, and, uh, you know, why, you know, she said they're 90% off mall properties. So they were smart to be off mall. They have three differentiators uh, their real estate location, which is off mall, product mix, and services. Uh, and then, um, talked about the benefit of the loyalty program. They have 28 million members in that program, uh, and it represents 90% of their sales. And you know, they uh, it's pretty integrated between online and offline, so it's an omni-channel loyalty program. Uh, and then you know, that she talked about the consumer changing. Uh, this is interesting. You know, she talked about gender fluidity and how that actually helps them. So now you have more, you know, more people wearing makeup regardless of their gender. Uh, and it, you know, there used to be all these social things around, you know, men wouldn't wear makeup. You and I wear makeup because the podcast, but you know, the, uh, uh, so, you know, so we're, that, we're actually thinking about <laughs> launching our own line of podcast makeup. <laughs> the Jason's <laughs> spoiler alert. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. I'd never thought of that that kind of you know sociological trend kind of benefiting them. Uh, you and I have talked uh, about uh, forward facing cameras and selfies have really helped uh, all these beauty companies because now people take more pictures of themselves and they want to look good for those. She didn't mention that though; it's just a, a freebie that we'll throw in there. Um, the you know uh, today's consumer wants a personalized, convenient experience. Uh, I'm certainly living that with my new company, where convenience is everything for folks, um, and then personalized as well. 
Uh, another thing I thought was interesting, this is where she broke the script a little bit. She went out on, on a limb and really said that they, you know, uh, it was interesting. She paid homage and she's talked about, we couldn't do any of this without our partnerships with Google, um, Google Express, Facebook, and then Spruce Labs. Uh, and uh, I thought that was interesting. And then she went through a whole diversity thing, um, which was good. You know, they, they have uh, – they have a board that has over 50% women, which is great. And then the officers in the company are over 60%. So, uh, you know, it makes a ton of sense, you know, you know, kind of older, you know, middle-aged white dude selling makeup doesn't make a ton of sense. And I think this is a great example of both, uh, you know, aligning with your customer uh, and then also uh, having really good diverse kind of input in the company to make it better. Then uh, the Nike keynote was up. So, What'd you take from that one? Yeah, uh, so that w- this was uh, Adam Sussman, who's the chief digital officer at Nike. I think he's relatively new in that role. I don't think Nike's had a chief digital officer. He said before. he was the first. Yeah, um, and so he he talked about some of the initiatives at Nike. Uh, uh, one that he spent a lot of time talking about was their membership program. So they they have a thing they call Nike Plus membership, um, and. Uh, they apparently have over 100 million uh, current members. They want that to be 500 million in the next five years. Uh, those members spend 4x what uh, non-members spend. Um, and there's a number of specific experiences they have in the membership program that have even uh, more dramatic uh, conversion results. So it's interesting. Um, I would have said that the general trend in, in loyalty was that that – the effectiveness of loyalty programs is kind of eroding. Um, and here we had two back-to-back keynotes that were saying uh, how successful their their membership programs are. So I found that interesting. Uh, he also talked about their conversational commerce initiative, which is launching. Um, so this is called Nike Experts on Demand. Um, and you can use the Nike apps to uh, have a text chat with a Nike brand expert that will give you advice. And so, you know, he he mentioned that you get your running shoe advice from a, a ten-time marathon winner, um, and it occurred to me like that guy probably doesn't want to be giving me advice about running shoes. But yeah, um, but that's interesting. And a bunch of the the conversational commerce vendors that at at the show were thrilled to hear uh, him him supporting that experience. Uh, personally, I think the jury's still out on on particularly chat based conversational commerce. I'm not sure Facebook's gotten. All the the traction that they were they were hoping to get, but but uh, it's still early, so we'll see. Uh, and then they did talk a lot, like his corporate videos. Uh, Nike's done some really interesting product launches, so that you know Justin Timberlake debuted a new um, uh, Air Jordan on the Super Bowl, and they made that available for purchase through their sneaker app, like the second he walked off uh, stage, and it sold out instantly. A month later, the next uh, version of that SKU came out, and they launched it on uh, Snapchat with a uh, a really inter- uh, innovative kind of launch commerce experience. Um, and you know, he didn't explicitly call this out, but one interesting point: it used to be that they would launch all these products through their wholesale partners, and people like Foot Locker would sell these, and kids would line up in the mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he's talking about all these uh, innovative direct to consumer experiences that are owned by Nike. Um, and the direct relationship Nike has with these 100 million uh, users in their affinity program. So to me, Nike is really the poster child for someone that's transitioning from predominantly wholesale to uh, not a majority of their sales, but but predominantly direct-to-consumer from an experience standpoint. Yeah, sidebar, I, I don't know if you follow it or not, but the uh, I've read several Wall Street reports that kind of point to the shoe guys are really having a first con- you know tough 
2018. I don't know uh, if it's because they're losing a lot of these launches or what's going on, but um, you're starting to see kind of, they call it sneaker fatigue um, with, with, you know, that model seemed like it would never run out, but it looks like, you know, the average sneakerhead has X number of shoes. They're really interested in the launches. You got brands like Nike moving that away from retail. That could be the sneakers have been kind of sustaining through the, the retail apocalypse Mulligan. So it'd be interesting to see if maybe this tips them over. Yeah. Yeah. I think of the inside tip, uh, the thing that sneakers need to save them now is much wider angle uh, front facing cameras on that smartphone because at the moment you can't see your feet in the selfie. Yeah, <laughs> just saying. Uh, so the next keynote, I think I was the only one that sat in on. So I think everyone left after Nike, um, but I was really interested in this next keynote. Uh, this is Tim Steiner, who's the founder and CEO of a company that, that few of our listeners have probably heard of called Akato. Um, and Akato is a UK-based direct-to-consumer grocery store. So you order online, they have fulfillment centers, they, they deliver the groceries to your home, and they're quite successful. They sell the equivalent of $2 billion a year in groceries direct-to-consumer. As we've talked about on this show, in the UK, 6% of all grocery sales are are. Uh, digital, whereas here we're less than one percent. So, yeah. so I was super interested. They're the the digital pure play grocery retailer in one of the most successful markets in the world. It's kind of like the peapot of the UK. But aren't there like um, I know our folks in the UK almost you know, they have like six people they can choose from. That yeah, and some so, of them are like so Marks the and traditional Spencer. grocery stores all offer. So Marks and Spencer, Tesco, yeah. ASDA, which is Walmart in the UK, uh, Carrefour, they they all offer. Um, this is the only pure play. Yeah, but okay. these the, this is the pure play, and these guys are bigger digitally than any of those um, those other companies. So it would be a little bit like what if Peapod sold more groceries than Kroger? Yeah, um, that surprised Amazon hasn't picked them up or Walmart. Yeah, we'll uh, and I, I don't know what their ownership stru- structure is, if they're in play or not. Those are all sort of interesting um, questions. But he uh, talked a lot about uh, the benefits of being a pure, pl- uh, being built from the ground up to deliver groceries versus being a retailer trying to transition to groceries. So uh, I have talked a lot on the show about how I think curbside pickup is the ultimate winner in this space. And largely because it's something that traditional grocery stores can do. And so we have this concept in the industry called store pick. And that's what the traditional grocery stores have decided to do is we'll, we'll pay our employee to pick all the groceries instead of the customer picking it. And then we'll make it convenient for the customer to get those, that store picked order. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, like, like very self-servingly, but with some credibility, is talking about how he doesn't think store pick can work in the long run and how these uh, built from the ground up fulfillment centers for home delivery are better. And he alleges that they've tried curbside pickup for their system. And the customer always gives, uh, is always choosing home delivery over curbside pickup, which flies in the face of my advice, by the way. So it's the, it's the customer experience, not the economics of let me take this item, put it onto a shelf in a convenient way for a shopper, and then pay a picker to pick it in an inefficient way. Exactly. It's not the economics that he's saying. It's when you give customers a choice, they'll choose delivery. Exactly. Okay. At the same price. Right. Which okay. like, is a big caveat in this. Yeah. Um, and so so one thing, first of all, is he talks about is uh, he, he showed the math. And he, he took all the things that have to happen when you place an order with Tesco. 
and they store pick that order, and uh, you do a curbside pickup, or Tesco delivers it to your house. Yes. And a typical order, uh, by his math, takes 75 minutes. Okay. Um, and then uh, he does that same order in his automated grocery fulfillment center that largely uses robotics to pick the order. Mm. Um, and he picks that same order in 15 minutes. Yeah. So his, his fundamental premise is we're 5x cheaper um, in these purpose-built things. So uh, store pick, you know, is really cost-disadvantaged. Yeah. Uh, and if it's what the consumer wants, regardless. Exactly. It's a win-win-win. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I, I buy that those, those purpose-built fulfillment centers are way more cost-effective than store picking. Um, and there are other problems with store picking that we'll talk about in that, in a, the next keynote. Um, I totally buy that where I'm, I'm not as confident as him, uh, is the curbside pickup versus the, the delivery. And it could, I believe him that his customers want delivery, uh, in the U S we find lots of people aren't home to receive that grocery delivery. Um, and uh, one thing he, he very much points out is he says, we are at price parity with all the traditional grocery stores. So we scrape all Tesco's prices, and our price to deliver it to your house is the same as Tesco's price for you to drive there and pick it yourself. Got it. And so no one in the U.S. does that. Everyone in the U.S. that's trying digital grocery have all kinds of premiums and uh, – added costs and service fees, the dreaded service fees. Exactly. Yes. And it's, it's worse than just service fees. It's service fees and they charge more for the same SKUs when they pick them for you. Yeah. Um, so, so a big difference between the two markets right now. Um, uh, so I, uh, his presentation was super interesting. Um, then the afternoon keynotes, there were three more. So the first one was was uh, Ben Silverman, who's the CEO of Pinterest, mm-hmm. and I'm just I'm going to be blunt. Uh, it, that was the most boring keynote to me of the show so far. And largely, uh, he he did a great presentation about how important visual discovery is, um, which I agree with him. It is. Yep. He, he, there was no unique insight. There was like very self serving for you know the business that that Pinterest happens to be in. Did they go over their rich pins and they also had a no, little marketplace no, initiative? They didn't, they didn't talk that. about any uh, no like, retail it was, kind of tie in at all. It was purely like people aren't going to discover new products via text. They need uh, visual discovery, and we're uh, we built a business for visual discovery, and it was literally that abstract. Cool. Back on uh, Okado or however you say it, one of the intern just came in. Oh, sorry. Uh, they are a public company. They're independent and they're listed on the FTSE, um, oh. the London Stock Exchange. Okay. And they're part of the FTSE 250. And they have a market cap of about $3.6 billion. All right. Yeah. So there you go. Um, so that's a perfect segue to the next keynote is <coughs> in some ways the U.S. equivalent, which is a much smaller company, is Fresh Direct. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is uh, uh, Jason Ackerman, uh, who's the CEO and founder of Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct is a direct-to-consumer digital grocery exclusively in the uh, Manhattan area. Okay. I always get this confused with HelloFresh, but they're a meal delivery company. Yeah. Um, so Fresh Direct is a like uh, Okato, a built from the ground up to deliver groceries to your home. Uh, they're most thought of as a grocery delivery company, which annoys Jason to no end because he thinks of them first and foremost as a food company. So, so the big thing that happens is he 
buys stuff from the farm and gets it to your refrigerator in half the time that Whole Foods does. <laughs> so it's just fresher. It's going to last much longer. Uh, they, they do these promotions like Lobster Day when you, you order lobster to be delivered to your house in Manhattan – uh, and it's been pulled out of the water in Maine less than 12 hours ago. Wow. Um, so they, so the supply chain is super cool. Uh, that Like uh, Akeda, although I, I don't think it's quite as automated, like they built this purpose-built fulfillment center, so they're avoiding store picks. And Jason jumped on the same bandwagon about why store picking isn't going to work, right? And so yeah. he talked, hey, price structure is problem number one. Uh, problem number two, none of these stores have accurate inventory, something we are, we, are, we talked about earlier. Yep. Um, and so they just can't fulfill your order properly. Like they're missing stuff and they make mistakes. Um, and problem number three, store pick doesn't scale. And so his point is if store pick ever got really popular, the customers in the store would be derogatorily affected as they're competing with all those employee pickers in the store. Yeah. So the the customers would get irritated that they're losing out on the the product to the to the uh, picker and staying in line behind too many pickers and the cashier and all those yeah, things. This happened to me the other day. I went to uh, our Harris Teeter Saturday night, and there was more employees picking and Instacart people picking than us. And they have these giant things. They're you know these relatively kind of pallet sized carts. That you, I'm sure you've seen them. Yep. And it is it is uh, cumbersome. The I can tell our grocery store is also uh, throttling. So they have, you know, uh, when I go like a Friday to get Saturday delivery, it's already sold out. So I think they're really limiting the number of deliveries, which is another bad customer experience. You know, yeah. so there's you're stuck between, you know, who's going to have the worst customer experience, the in-store person or the out-of-store person. And that's a that's a tough, you know, tough decision to make for the customer. For sure. <laughs> and then, um, so that was all super interesting. So this is two guys that were globbing heavily in favor of dedicated delivery centers versus the the store picking model. Um, again, there just are so many grocery stores that have all this investment. Like it's hard to, yeah. of course, they're going to do the best they can with the model they have. Um, but then he had another insight, which I totally hadn't thought about at all. That's super interesting. Um, he Fresh Direct is launching an, a sub brand service called Food Kick. And Food Kick is one hour delivery. Uh, normally Fresh Direct is next day delivery. Um, and so what he pointed out is he said only about 40% of food purchases are planned purchases. Hmm. So I'm going to do my grocery shop. I'm going to shop from a list. And it's fine that all those groceries get delivered tomorrow because I'm putting them in the fridge and using them all week. Yeah. This this could be a Manhattan thing. I'll just put it. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know like what math he used for his thing. And yeah. it could be less. Because all the bodegas. Everyone I know in Manhattan, they like shop days. Yeah. Yeah. It's and just like, all of Europe is like this as yeah. well, by the way. But yeah. yeah. Um, so he's saying 60% of food sales are unplanned, mm -hmm. meaning like you just decided that your friends are coming over and you need an appetizer. Um, and so the food kick is this new uh, business to deliver in one hour. And at first you'd go, why wouldn't you just have the same website and let you pick next day delivery, presumably at one cost and one hour delivery at a different cost? Uh, and what he quickly pointed out that I hadn't thought about is the shopping context is wildly different for that person that shop, like how you would merchandise um, the, the planned order versus the impulse order and what you would, what products you would feature and what pictures you would show um, are, 
turn out to be very different. And so they felt the experience is different enough that it warranted a, literally a, a second site. So it seems like if you're planning, you're very transactional. You know, I need broccoli for the meal on next Wednesday. Yep. But then I guess it's more serendipitous discovery for the. Yeah. Uh, and more about the end outcome than the ingredients. People. Like, so the plan shop is a lot more about the ingredients and you're right. You're right. Like reordering off this list and all, all of these sorts of things. Mm, okay. um, so that was interesting. And then he alluded to one thing I already knew, but maybe interesting um, to a lot of our users. The other thing that people lose sight of in grocery is we always talk about ratings and reviews and social proof and how important they are in e-commerce. Uh, so ratings and reviews are super useful for grocery, except the traditional ratings and reviews would be worthless. You don't care how people rated the bananas from a year ago. Mm-hmm. You care how they would rate the bananas that you're going to get today if you order a banana. Mm-hmm. And so what Fresh Direct has done is they've hired subject matter experts to taste every piece of produce every day and rate that day's produce. So there's some poor dude whose bad job is to taste kale every morning at 5 a.m. and say today's kale is a 6 out of 10. That just seems crazy expensive. Yeah, but they uh, – so like – Why would you source something that didn't have good ratings? uh, Yeah, and so uh, I've had this – This is the crappiest lump kale I've ever had. It's a great question, and I've actually (laughs) asked Jason that question. And the answer is sometimes you just need an ingredient, and you're okay with it not being perfect. Sometimes you care about the ingredient. So uh, you're making pasta, and you need tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. You'll take the tomatoes even though they're not in the peak of season versus if I tell you that this week's tomatoes are the most amazing tomatoes of the year, it might cause you to decide to make pasta. Yeah, or Um, caprese salad or something tomato-focused. Yeah, Exactly. And so what they do is they will only promote on the site items that are highly rated, but they still will sell – uh, produce that's lower rated because sometimes it's just a utility. The, 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 the mm. customer just needs it for an ingredient. Interesting. I would not have thought of that. Yeah. Um, and so then the last keynote uh, of the day was uh, Facebook Mobile. Um, and that that uh, keynote ended up being a little bit hijacked by sort of the day's news. Um, they were forced to answer a lot of questions about uh, Cambridge Analytics. Um and so, so they did talk a lot about that. Uh, maybe we'll do we'll talk about it in yeah. the podcast. But it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of issues around Facebook and privacy and things that kind of derailed the whole. Let's talk about retail and Facebook. Exactly. Um, but then they did briefly touch on this uh, topic that's very interesting to me. Uh, Facebook has launched this Facebook Pixel that stores can use retailers can use to do online to offline attribution. And they, it's been in beta for a while. They've just taken it out of beta, but they talked about one of their clients that was using it in beta, which was Michael Kors. Um, and Michael Kors was able to validate that uh, they could buy ads on Facebook that increased traffic in a Michael Kors store by 11%. And so this probably is not a pixel. Is it? Is this like their device ID thing <laughs> where they can track you across every device? And, and does this... They had a beacon program that seems to have yeah. died. So, so the reason they, the they, they, uh, it's a very internal facing reason they call it Facebook Pixel. You're right. So they basically they're using an ID graph, um, but the one thing they don't have in the ID graph is uh, the customer in the store. Right. And so Facebook Pixel is their 
like metaphor for let us put our pixel in your store. It's it's actually not a pixel, right? Um, but like let them integrate, let us integrate into your POS system so uh, that we can okay. we can identify your, which is the equivalent of let us put a pixel on your site. Basically. It's funny. So pixels become almost like this this name for tracking, exactly. Versus like it's technically actually is a pixel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but so this is a, a you know obviously all these ad platforms have a really vested interest in proving that they influence offline sales. And so Google and Facebook have invested a lot of money in helping uh, make marketers believe that they can do it. Um, but it also is a really useful uh, piece of analytics for a retailer to have. And uh, at least in the case of Michael Kors, it appears to to really be uh, validating some of Facebook's claims. Cool. So that gets us through the halftime. Just uh, I, I know we've used a lot of your time. We appreciate it. there's a lot of content at this show. We think it's important that uh, if you weren't able to come or even if you were here, hopefully we've picked up on some things that will help you kind of summarize. I know a lot of people come to the show and they get tied up in meetings or the very long Starbucks line. So um, just quickly looking I've forward. I've gone to Starbucks twice during this podcast. <laughs> So, so quickly looking forward, um, you know, the next two days we're going to have some keynotes from Unilever. Uh, there's going to be a really interesting Jason Del Rey interview with Mark Lore uh, and Andy Dunn of Bonobos. Uh, he doesn't ever pull punches, so that'll be fun. Um, there's Amazon talking about some international things. House, uh, another Google, or I guess this is the first Google keynote. Uh, and then um, there's a Code Commerce event where Jason has a sidebar kind of a conference and does some really interesting interviews there. We'll be reporting Nordstrom, on. I think, is in that one. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, uh, looking forward to Wednesday, uh, eBay will be talking about some of the things they're doing with machine learning and AI. Uh, we'll have Boxed. That's the nursing one because there's been all these reports that they've been looking to be acquired. You know, one That I they've saw, rebuffed some acquirers. Yeah. I saw they turned down a $400 million from uh, somebody. So that's going to be interesting. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully that was a smart decision on their, on their side. So um, still a lot to look forward to. Hope you've enjoyed this halftime report. After the show, we will be doing a second half kind of overview to catch you up on all the things that happened at those keynotes and um, tracks that are coming up. Yeah, and uh, just like to remind all our listeners that we're living in Las Vegas for 16 days, so you don't have to. Uh, so until next time, happy commerce. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.